Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. All right, you ready for the joke? How can you tell if someone went to Harvard? They tell you. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got an Ivy League joke from artist and Pee Wee's Playhouse set designer Wayne White. That'll help break the ice. The new documentary Beauty is Embarrassing about Wayne's eventful life comes out this weekend. Later, we'll hear Pulitzer Prize winning author Juno Diaz read from his new collection of stories called This is How You Lose Her. Also coming up, actress Emily Blunt talks dolphins and we hear a new song from Grizzly Bear. Lots of culture and lots of animals. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Democratic National Convention kicks off. A powerful earthquake rocked Costa Rica on Wednesday. The National Park Service may expand its warning about a recent outbreak of hantavirus at Yosemite. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Rehan Harmansi. She is an editor at BuzzFeed, a news and entertainment website. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about uh, a case that is going to be heard by the New York Supreme Court very soon about whether pole dancing is a tax-exempt form of art. (laughs) Do we really have to take that to court? Don't we already know that? Uh, No, this is actually the third time this case will be heard in court. Um, The club in question, Night Moves, spelled N-I-T-E, obviously. Of course. Already won the first go-round, a judge saying that because the dancing was a protected form of artistic expression, they would not have to pay $124,000 in taxes. That's a lot of singles. (laughs) Indeed. Unfortunately, this was overturned on appeal, but the High Court of the State of New York is going to hear this case. Wow. Yes. First of all, I I will be very interested to hear the transcripts. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Maybe the reason this litigation is continuing is because everyone's just so into this case. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Cut it down. I mean, let's revisit it. Let's keep fighting. This is fun. Yeah, you could see the first judge being like, yeah, let's see some footage of this <laughs> artistic expression. Well, that's not so crazy because uh, the New York Times recently had an article about how a lot of modern dance performances feature people in the buff. So, you know, who are we to say? Yeah, I mean, they've called a cultural anthropologist to stand to um, explain exotic art forms. <laughs> Um, I would like to hear what they say, you you know, like the best art a lap dance makes you think. Yeah. (laughs) But guys, but guys, if Night Moves wins, that means certain types of strip clubs in New York will be tax exempt, which means savvy investors may start investing in strip clubs and (laughs) Night Moves could become the new Cayman Islands. I I can't imagine why that would not work. The amount of wealth stashed in the Cayman Islands is pornographic. Why not this? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the small talk. No problem. Thanks. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our palate-cleansing history lesson with booze. First, the history part. 70 years ago this week, in the midst of World War II, a fire started in Oregon's Siskiyou National Forest. Now, most folks at your dinner party won't know why it was such a big deal. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. Some fires in the Siskiyou have wiped out whole towns, but the forest's most historic blaze barely did any damage at all. It was early morning on September 9, 1942, and a forestry serviceman named Howard Gardner was in a lookout tower keeping his eyes peeled for wildfires. 
Suddenly he heard what sounded like a backfiring Model T automobile and saw a tiny unmarked plane fly by from the west. That was curious, and things got curiouser when, just a couple hours later, he spotted flames leaping out of the forest in the distance. The blaze never got out of control. Gardner hiked over with another guy and kept it contained until others arrived to snuff it out. But then, in the smoldering ashes, they found a foot-deep crater. The FBI was called in. They combed the site and found dozens of pounds of shrapnel, some of it stamped with Japanese lettering. The U.S. mainland had just undergone the first, and what proved to be the only, wartime bombing by an enemy plane in history. Later dubbed the Lookout Raid, the plan was hatched by a Japanese Navy pilot named Nobuo Fujita. He'd taken a little plane, usually used for recon, loaded it with incendiary bombs, and took off from a submarine near the Oregon coast. The idea was to start a huge wildfire and spread panic. And it might have worked, if it hadn't recently rained. Oregonians didn't hold a grudge. In fact, 20 years later, the folks in Brookings, a few miles from the bomb site, invited Fujita to fly back to Oregon, this time to lead their annual Azalea Festival parade. He took the opportunity to apologize, gave the town a centuries-old samurai sword, and planted a tree where he dropped his bombs. And when he died in 1998, some of his ashes were buried there. that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze to go along with it. I'm on the line with Adam Van Cleve. He is a bartender at the Superfly Martini Bar in Brookings, Oregon. Adam, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make? We have created the Bonsai Fireball. (laughs) And I think I know why it's called the Bonsai Fireball. Before we go further, though, did you grow up around Brookings? Yep, born and raised here in Brookings. Okay, so were you aware of this story? Is this like a commonly known thing around there? Yes, the pilot has visited here many times, and we have his family's samurai sword displayed here in our library. So when you're like a a school child in this town, do you go to see the sword? (laughs) Definitely. It is included in the normal field trips in elementary school. (laughs) That's kind of interesting. I love that twist to the story that he came back to visit. So tell me a little more about what's in your Bonsai Firebomb drink. Well, we start off with two parts Superfly Vodka, which is actually made here in Brookings, and it comes from the mountains, including Mount Emily where the bomb happened. This is like the water that actually defended Brookings because it put out the fire. Right. (laughs) Very cool. All right, so we have that. What else is in your drink? Then we have one part orange juice. Okay. One part fresh muddled strawberry and a half of a teaspoon of sriracha hot sauce. All right, so that's going to add heat, and I'm guessing the strawberries and orange juice make it look like a kind of a fireball, right? Correct. It definitely looks like an orange bright fireball. Okay, and then what are you going to do with it? So you throw all those together in a cocktail shaker with ice, Mm -hmm. shake it, serve it into a sugar rim martini glass. All right. Well, that sounds delicious and spicy. My favorite part of this story is that this guy was clearly pretty smart to coordinate this whole thing, and yet it didn't occur to him that Oregon was going to be wet. (laughs) Seems like a pretty big oversight. Yeah, kind of interesting. And Rico, Mr. Fujita, the soldier who did the bombings. Of course. His family still pays visits to Brookings. Nice. His daughter actually visited over Memorial Day this year. See, this is how I like my war stories. You know, it's minimal damage, mm-hmm. no loss of life, followed by total reconciliation and a tree. You exactly. Know? <laughs> yeah. More of those, please. Please. 
Uh, people, our cocktail recipes will bring you peace. You'll find them all at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is Australian writer and filmmaker Natasha Pincus. This week she'll be at the Video Music Awards, thanks to a clip she directed that has now earned 315 million YouTube views and rising. Here she is to tell us about it and to share a singular list. Hi, I'm Natasha Pincus and I'm the director of Courtier's music video, Somebody That I Used To Know. It is up for two VMAs. Uh, it's nominated for Video of the Year and also Best Editing. So many people know me as a music video director because of the Gautier video, but I particularly have an interest in single shot or one shot music videos. A one shot video is kind of like one act theatre. You're watching something unfold in one take, uninterrupted, without any editing manipulation for the duration of the song. It's really tough to pick my favourite one-shot videos, but here's a couple that uh, have really influenced me and inspired me to be a music video director. My number one single-shot video of all time would have to be Radiohead's song called No Surprises. It's a very recognisable, famous video. It's quite iconic. You see Tom York, lead singer of the band's face, in close-up. He's encaged in this sort of glass mask or device that gradually, very, very incrementally, painfully fills up with water. What I find particularly dramatic is it totally gets the audience into a position of empathy with him. You're waiting for the moment that he gets completely engulfed in water. We watch him struggle for air for roughly a minute, I think, and his first breath of life again, it's just like you feel like you've been holding your breath all that time with him. It's funny because recently I um, did a music video for a singer called Missy Higgins and uh, it involved throwing her into the ocean in the middle of winter. And people afterwards said to me, gee, you really like to torture your subjects. She actually said those words to me. I think a lot of the times singers write songs, they're writing them because they're themselves in a position of struggle or tortured by some emotion. So it feels appropriate to dramatise that. Number two, I think I will choose a little more of an obscure choice. This video is by a band called The Mess Hall, and the song is called Pulse. In this video, we open on a seaside scene of these kids that look like they possibly could be in some bizarre cult, wearing white socks up to their knees, and they're skipping rope to the beat of the music. And then the video shifts gear really dramatically from being really composed and really elegant, all of a sudden just goes crazy. I want the sun in the sky. This guy just runs into frame and the camera just runs with him and, and we don't know what's going on. And obviously he's kind of like an escapee from this kind of cult or something. We turn around to see where he's run from and there's this massive fire on the horizon. So it's gone from order to chaos and it's gone from control to freedom and it's all happened in the time of the song, you know, four minutes. I just love the element of surprise. Great videos, whether they're one shot or otherwise, start you in one place and end you somewhere else. I think this has a wonderful arc and it's just a little bit unsolvable as well. So you're still not feeling like it's, I'm watching drama on TV, I'm still watching art. Number three, I am going to choose after much debate with myself, Coldplay's Yellow. 
So in the video, the lead singer of the band, Chris Martin, is walking along the beach towards us and he's singing in slow motion. And what's happening all around, which we don't really notice at first, I think, is that the sky is changing colour. So night is becoming day, eventually revealing the sunrise on the horizon. And yes, it becomes all yellow. Look at the stars, look how they shine very simple, very, very beautiful, one concept really well executed. And uh, when you watch the video quite a lot, you sort of see the little details they've gone to in changing that sky. I think one-shot videos have a lot of detail in them that rewards the repeated watch. Music video used to be something, you know, you'd watch it on telly and that was all you got to see. But now with YouTube and things, you find that people watch videos hundreds of times. So I feel like it's our responsibility as video directors often to go into that detail and to reward those uh, yeah, repeated view experience. The guest list from filmmaker Natasha Pincus, her music video for Gautier's hit song, Somebody That I Used To Know, is up for two video music awards this week. And Brendan, you know the video is partially animated, right? Yes. There are all these little triangles that appear all over Gautier's body and the set. Natasha told me after shooting for 26 straight hours... She started hallucinating <laughs> triangles basically <Right>. everywhere. <laughs> so she tortures musicians and herself. Apparently so. All right. Yeah, she's sense. equal opportunity. All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, movie star Emily Blunt gets choked up about everything. When the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we hear from author Juno Diaz. Yes, but first, it is time for our guest of honor. And this week, it's actress Emily Blunt. She first made a splash in the U.S. as the neurotic senior assistant to Meryl Streep's character in The Devil Wears Prada. Right. She starred in films like Young Victoria and The Adjustment Bureau. I spoke with her earlier this year when she starred in the Judd Apatow-produced comedy The Five-Year Engagement which the New Yorker called, quote, an exemplary modern romantic comedy. So it's okay to like it. We have permission. New Yorker said so. Great. (laughs) That movie comes out on DVD this week. And because I just hate cliches, I started off my interview with her asking about the weather. It's raining here in L.A., which is unusual. Does this weather make you homesick? <laughs> Everyone thinks London rains all the time. It, it does. It's true. But I do miss London. I was just there seeing my family, and I went and stayed with mum and dad in my childhood bedroom. And it's always really nostalgic and emotional going home because you sort of look at all the photographs of yourself when you were younger before any of this happened to me. And it's just a whole other world now, and it's always really strange and lovely going home. That's actually a really funny scene in the movie. Your character, Violet, returns to her home and is filled with Wham! posters, (laughs) as well as a picture of Sigmund Freud because she's a PhD candidate for psychology. What's on your walls at home? I have pictures of myself on like really cheap, bad Brits abroad holidays with my girlfriends to like the Canary Islands or something, you know? Those kind of, you go to Greece, you go to Spain, and you just party too much. Exactly, and the whole thing costs you like $200 for the entire trip. (laughs) But there were no no Depeche Mode posters, nothing like that? I did have a couple of boy band pictures. I think it might have been like New Kids on the Block or something. And I I also, I I loved the Beatles and the Beach Boys when I was younger. You saved yourself. New Kids on the Block. That was a little little bit scary. Um, You've been doing a lot of interviews. You've been doing this for a while now. We asked this of all our guests, what question... Are you tired of being asked in interviews? I just was promoting a movie called Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. And I never want to be asked how I like my salmon cooked ever 
again. What does that have to do with the movie? Because they don't know what to ask because the movie has a crazy title and it's a really unique premise and people don't know how to talk about it. And so and in the interview, you have four minutes. And so they just ask these stupid questions like, do you like salmon? Are you a fisherwoman? I mean, it was like those were the questions that I just wanted to kill myself with. Whereas this movie that we're promoting, it's interesting how much better the questions have been. Well, that was very diplomatic of you. <laughs> no, it's true. Well, I'm not going to ask you a question about engagements, even though you did get married to John Krasinski, the star of The Office, while you were making this film. But I will ask you about relationships. Uh, in this movie, your character Violet and her fiancé Tom, played by Jason Segel, your characters are both ambitious people, but when Violet gets accepted to this PhD program in Michigan, Tom follows her. That snow looks nice. Yeah, it's fine. Do you want to roll around with me in it and get weird? You mean like... Yeah! No one's around. Let's get into Michigan life. Woo! <laughs> Do it! No! Oh! oh! What? Ah! What? My hip, my hip. Oh, my God. I landed on some... Oh, it's a fire hydrant. What is a fire hydrant oh, doing there? Poor old grandpa. And he kind of sets aside his career dreams. And I was wondering if you have ever had to sacrifice work for love uh, or the other way around? I haven't actually. I mean, I think that, I think sometimes, you know, you don't want to work as much because you want time off to be normal and be in your relationship. And, but I, I don't see that as a compromise or a trade. It's just what I want, you know? If I'm correct, you have four movies coming out this year. So when do you have time off? It's just gross. I, well, it just is not, you can never control when they come out. Like for example, a movie like Looper, which comes out later this year, I only worked three weeks on it. And you were 16 then. <laughs> exactly. Well, some of the funniest scenes in this film are between you and Alison Brie, who plays your sister. Uh, you guys are very competitive. She's a little bit wilder than you are. Uh, you have a couple of sisters, right? I have two sisters, yeah, and Alison has, has a sister too. So I think we would share stories with each other of how we interact with our sisters. And I think whether we talk about it or not, subconsciously or not, that material gets on the screen in some way. And... Yeah. And I kind of love that even though Violet is seen as the one who's a success, she's an intellectual, she's doing well, and she's overthinking this engagement, Allison's character, Susie, is seen as the kind of mess up in life. And yet she actually manages to have a happy relationship and not overthink it and just go with her gut. And yeah. so it's quite interesting how that dynamic shifts between them. In your own family, would you be, what would your adjective be? Like, how would they describe you? Of, of this? <laughs> uh, oh, God. Probably quite self-deprecating, but you're 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 middle. You're not the oldest. You're the middle, yeah. I probably am the one who's most emotional. <laughs> really? Yeah. My oldest sister is the pragmatist, and my younger sister is the coolest chick ever, and she doesn't emotionalize anything. I probably am the one who cries most easily. <laughs> not even at anything, but like if something amazing happens or if I see someone you know, winning the 100-meter sprint, I'll cry, you know, and they all think... Really? Yeah, I find it so emotional. Well, the 100-meter sprint, that's pretty emotional. It's high-octane, you know? It's very high-octane. It sounds very British to get choked up over track and field, whereas here in America, I think we'd get choked up over, I don't know, NASCAR. Probably. Oh, God, who could cry over that, though? It's just the noise. Maybe I'd cry over the noise. All right. Well, we have a second request we make of uh, our guests on this show, and it is tell us something we don't know, either about you or the world at large? Well, I recently have been starting to scuba dive and stuff in my free time. 
And dolphins, you know, the little squeaks and little things that they call out and the sounds, they're calling out their names to each other. Really? Like they have individual names? Yeah, basically each sound or squeak you hear is their personal name or sound and they call it out to each other and that, those are the noises that you're hearing. I had no idea that was going on. And the other thing you should never do is if the dolphin comes to you and allows you to touch the dolphin, go for it. But if you reach out and touch a dolphin, you can actually break up dolphin partnerships because they mate for life similar to penguins so if you touch them they it's like it's like they've been cheating on the other one that would be like all over us weekly emily breaks up this dolphin pair in malibu exactly don't touch the dolphins they don't like it that is so so you've really been practicing this quite a bit i used to be terrified of the ocean as i'm a huge victim of jaws even though it's my favorite movie i'm so scared of sharks and so i've recently been getting over that and diving with sharks and beautiful places like Bora Bora and I love it. I find it the most serene existential experience. I love it. So this is a nice counterpoint maybe to your youth uh, drinking in the Canary Island. <laughs> exactly. Those days are done. Rico, we should note, as many, many listeners let us know after we first aired that piece, mm. dolphins actually do not mate for life. Yeah, listeners really wanted us to know that. Too, yeah. which makes me think there's some relationship insecurity out there amongst people and their dolphins yeah also <laughs> also from science non-fact to science fiction emily's next film is called looper it's a sci-fi flick co-starring former guest of honor joseph gordon levitt and that movie comes out on the 28th possible date movie and if you're a dolphin go ahead and bring two dates heck make it three and now time to eavesdrop Five years ago, Juno Diaz's debut novel, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, won the Pulitzer Prize. That book follows a Dominican-American boy and his immigrant family. Amelia Juno returns to in his new short story collection. Let's listen in. Hi, my name is Juno Diaz, and I have a new book out this week called This Is How You Lose Her. It's basically the story of this young cat, this young cheater, his rise and his fall. The story we're going to hear is called The Cheater's Guide to Love. Here's the first section. Your girl catches you cheating. Well, actually, she's your fiancé, but hey, in a bit, it so won't matter. She could have caught you with one sucia, she could have caught you with two, but as you're a total cuero who didn't ever empty his email trash can, she caught you with 50. Sure, over a six-year period, but still, 50 girls? Damn. Maybe if you'd been engaged to a super open-minded Blanquita, you could have survived it. But you are not engaged to a super open-minded Blanquita. Your girl is a badass salsedeña who doesn't believe in open anything. In fact, the one thing she swore she would never forgive was cheating. I'll put a machete in you, she promised. And of course, you swore you wouldn't do it. You swore you wouldn't. And you did. She'll stick around for a few months because you dated for a long, long time. Because you went through much together. Her father's death, your tenure madness, her bar exam passed on the third attempt. And because love, real love, is not so easily shed. Over a tortured six-month period, 
you will fly to the DR, to Mexico for the funeral of a friend, to New Zealand. You will walk the beach where they filmed the piano, something she'd always wanted to do, and now, in penitent desperation, you give it to her. She is immensely sad on that beach, and she walks up and down the shining sand alone, bare feet in the freezing water, and when you try to hug her, she says, don't. She stares at the rocks jutting out of the water, the wind taking her hair straight back. On the ride back to the hotel, you pick up a pair of hitchhikers, a couple so giddy with love that you almost throw them out the car. She says nothing. Later in the hotel, she will cry. You try every trick in the book to keep her. You write her letters. You drive her to work. You quote Neruda. You compose a mass email disowning all your sucias. You stop drinking. You stop smoking. You claim you're a sex addict and start attending meetings. You blame your father. You blame your mother. You blame the patriarchy. You blame Santo Domingo. You find a therapist. You start taking salsa classes like you always swore you would so that the two of you could dance together. You claim that you were sick. You claim that you were weak. It was the book. It was the pressure. And every hour like clockwork, you say that you're so, so sorry. You try it all, but one day she will simply sit up in bed and say, no more. And yeah. For a while, you haunt the city like a two-bit ball player dreaming of a call-up. You phone her every day and leave messages which she doesn't answer. You write her long, sensitive letters which she returns unopened. You even show up at her apartment at odd hours and at her job downtown until finally her little sister calls you, the one who was always on your side, and she makes it plain. If you try to contact my sister again, She's going to put a restraining order on you. For some Negroes, that wouldn't mean But you ain't that kind of Negro. You stop. You move back to Boston. You never see her again. Writer Juno Diaz reading from the story The Cheater's Guide to Love. His new collection called This Is How You Lose Her hits shelves this week. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now, time for Chattering Class. This is where we're schooled by an expert on some dinner party-worthy topic. This week, the topic is the fall TV season, which is just getting underway. And our teacher is Nuzat Noreen. She writes about television for Entertainment Weekly. And Nuzat, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, is it great to be a TV critic these days or a huge burden? Because It's a little bit of both, I have to admit. Yeah, because I feel like TV is getting better and more artful than ever, but that means you have just a ton of television that you have to stay on top of. I mean, how many hundreds of hours of television do you have to watch in a season? Oh my gosh, I've lost count. I try to watch as many shows as I can live, and then my DVR is completely backed up. A little, a little part of me is dreading the fall because I know I'm going to have so many shows to catch up on. Your life as you know it is over. It's it's just yes. you in your living room. Basically. Well, listen, I figure you were going to be writing and talking about the groundbreaking Mad Men's and, and Breaking Bad shows mm-hmm. plenty over the next few weeks. 
What I thought would be interesting is to learn about those shows that aren't so obviously art, mm -hmm. but still have something worthwhile to offer. You know what I mean? Like defensible guilty pleasures. Absolutely. So, And there are quite a few of them. Really? All right. Well, mm -hmm. give me an example. Well, there's L.A. Complex, which is actually airing on the CW. The first glance of that show, you're going to think, oh, this is like a Melrose place. It's about a bunch of hot young people living in this apartment complex trying to make it in Hollywood. Oh, boy. Um, As somebody who lives in Hollywood, <laughs> I, I see enough of that on the street. Right? It was actually the lowest rated broadcast drama debut of all time, which I know is not a great case for this show. But has it already debuted this season? It has debuted. Um, it's a Canadian import. It's on its second season. And it's actually an incredibly well-written, very smart show. Um, and it's got really great characters. You have an aging actress who's trying to make a comeback, a closeted rapper who's, you know, trying to hide mm. his identity. Just in time for, uh, in real life, Frank Ocean, the real-life rapper, to come out of the closet. Exactly. It very much, because the characters are so well-developed, it really does make you feel like these characters are based on people ah. in the industry. And, you know, another interesting aspect of the show is it's kind of a show within the show. Some of the characters are on TV shows and those shows parody things that we've seen <laughs> in the past. Like one of the characters is a star of a medical drama and it's very reminiscent of Grey's Anatomy and ER. Very fun to watch. What? I mean, why aren't people watching it, do you think? You know, Melrose Place did pretty well. I think people really just thought this is going to be some cliche show about young Hollywood wannabes. But um, that's never kept the American public from watching a TV show before. It hasn't, but I think nowadays people do look for something more, and they do look for something a little more intelligent. So when L.A. Complex first came on the air, people sort of wrote it off. But fans who have actually been watching it can tell you that it surprises you. All right. I would argue that a, a glance at some of the reality shows dotting the top 10 might put the lie <laughs> to your argument that we're seeking high quality solely. But well, let's move on. What's uh, maybe another example? Well, Teen Mom is another example. When it first came on there, I mean, speaking of reality, people said it glorified teen pregnancy and it was just about taking advantage of these young girls. But over the years, it's really proven to be a smart show that tells you about the struggles these girls are going through. In fact, um, one of our writers actually did a story in EW about how during Teen Mom's first year on the air, the teen pregnancy rate dropped significantly. Really? Yes. So it's actually sending some sort of message across. Am I remembering this right? That's on MTV? That is on MTV, yes. I, I will admit I'm now outside of MTV's demographic, and it's been a while <laughs> since I watched their shows. Is this maybe some hint they're moving away from trash and towards... Well, I think that depends on your definition of trash. Um... <laughs> I, I should also say that I wrote for some of those trashy MTV oh, shows did you? at one point. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to admit them, but I'm not just a snob. Well, you know, I think... MTV is definitely moving toward more scripted shows. Jersey Shore, they just announced they're wrapping up. This is the final season. Oh. Um, I can tell you're heartbroken. <laughs> <laughs> But overall, I think MTV is starting to look for more scripted television. All right. And finally, I, I wanted mm -hmm. uh, your comment on this. Uh, Jackson Musker, our assistant producer, he says one of his favorite shows is a, is a smart yet guilty pleasure House Hunters International? Yes, House Hunters. Um, you're essentially watching people shop for properties across the world. Um, there's two versions. There's House Hunters, which takes place in the U.S., and there's House Hunters International, which is my personal favorite. And it is kind of educational in that way. You get a sense of mm. how people are actually living in different countries. Do you, is there an episode that stands out for you? 
Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I mean, there are episodes where one of the home buyers will be incredibly picky. She's in a foreign country, but she wants appliances like she'd have in the U.S. And I kind of love those episodes because you see how unrealistic people can be when they're traveling abroad. So as our summer <laughs> vacations are over, we can sort of vicariously be reminded of what it's like to be a tourist. It's perfect. <laughs> Nuzat Noreen, thanks so much for schooling us today. Thank you for having me. So wait, Rico, you wrote Trashy MTV Scripts? Yeah, it was a long time ago. It's not really worth going into. Yeah, but you brought it up. Seriously. So let's get into it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's not a big deal. You created Dave Lee Roth, didn't you? <laughs> no. That's an actual, that's a real person. What about Snooki? She's also a real person. No way. Yes. Folks, <laughs> coming up, we sample some orange wine and Marketplace's Patty Hirsch offers tips about tips when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, we hear the latest from Grizzly Bear, the band, not my stuffed childhood friend. Uh, and in a few minutes, <laughs> Rico samples orange wine, a beverage that once was considered crazy. Like the white stripes adding bass. That crazy, if you can believe it. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is Patty Hirsch. He is a senior producer at Public Radio's business show Marketplace, where he oversees the production of the weekly personal finance show Marketplace Money, and he's the author of a brand new book called Man vs. Markets, great name, Economics Explained Plain and Simple, and it's basically a primer about the economy. Patty, thanks for joining us. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise. You know, our show is called The Dinner Party. You must, when you go to cocktail parties, people must ask you questions all the time. What's the most common question you get from people concerning money? A lot of them are asking me right now about emergency funds, actually. You know, I do the personal finance thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, you know, how important is it for, for me to have an emergency fund? And how do I actually save up the money to do that if I'm spending all my money on rent and food? Sort of cash on hand in case, for instance, they might lose their job. Exactly, something. exactly. What do you say? I say, stop buying steak. <laughs> right. Don't eat out, right? <laughs> that's the thing you have to say. If you've got to cut your costs, start small. Mm. Start small and then get yeah. big. All right. Well, that's the that's the question people are asking you most of the time mm -hmm. at, at dinner parties. We've got some questions from our listeners okay. about various money questions, and they are not that one. I'll so brace myself then. <laughs> this would be a nice change for you. Uh, this is from Ben in Missouri City, Texas. I did not know that Texas had a city named after another state. Ben writes, I think tipping protocol for dining inside restaurants is pretty well understood, but what about takeout? Mm. I feel like I should tip something because the employees are still performing a service, mm -hmm. but they're not doing nearly as much work as they would if we actually ate at the restaurant or even if they delivered. Mm -hmm. Any advice slash percentage suggestions? That's a good question. To me, this is about relationships. I mean, if you're going to this um, takeout place a lot, then you want to have a relationship with the people that are, you know, they're going to notice you, they're going to recognize you. And if they see the same guy coming in again and again and again and not tipping, well, you know, they might do something to your food. So it's probably wise <laughs> that you tip them. Interesting. Mm. So, but if you're just going there one time, who cares? Yeah. Frankly, I can't hang with that answer. Really? Well, as someone who's worked in food service, I tip absolutely every barista, every bartender, at least a dollar. Yeah, but always. But that, but there you are. You're at the bar. You're spending time at the bar. You might buy another drink. This is you're getting food in a plastic bag and you're walking out the door. But I also know they're getting underpaid. But your solution is that you would tip less. Though. I just tip yeah, a dollar or two. I never tip twenty percent. Yeah, I might round up or something. All right. Yeah. 
So, but, Ben, I hope you're hopelessly confused. <laughs> maybe you can split the difference between these two and tip 50 cents. There you are. A token amount. <laughs> All right. So we have another question. Mm-hmm. This comes from Elizabeth Ann. She sent it to us via Facebook. She asks, how do I discreetly get rid of a bad glass of wine, i.e. oaky Chardonnay and mm. sweet rosé? Mm. Speak for yourself, Elizabeth Ann. I mean... <laughs> In California, Oki Chardonnay is a valued drink. Uh, so she asks, how do I discreetly get rid of a bad glass of wine at a party and ask for a better, different wine? Mm. Depends on the size of the party, right? Oh, if you're at a big true. party, no problem. You just say, excuse me, I'm just going to go to the bathroom. Excuse yourself, <laughs> put the glass down, walk around the potted plant, come back, and then just grab another <laughs> glass from somewhere else. Okay, nobody's going to notice. Yeah. Okay. If you're in a small party where the host is pouring the wine, you, you just got to drink you, it. You got to suck it up. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe with a straw. Well, couldn't you? But you could also absentmindedly leave your glass of wine on top of the refrigerator. You could, but then your host might be like, oh, where's your glass? I'm like, you know, oh, that's a problem. I don't know. Here, pour me another of the red. What if it's the only one that they've got on hand? And you got it. You're in the wrong house. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> you need to go what to if, a new party. That is so snobby. <laughs> what if they're saving for their emergency fund? That's Touché. right. They're probably just saving for the emergency fund. You should help them. Mm. Uh, all right. Here's something from Brian in Miami. What is your take... Patty Hirsch, on money clips. Sometimes they strike me as showy, writes Brian. For instance, when people peel off large bills from the stuffed Mm -hmm. clips, a wallet can help conceal excess nicely. Am I justified or am I looking too far into this? You know, money clips always remind me of a character that that was on British TV a few years ago. A comedian had this character and it was called Louds of Money. (laughs) And uh, Louds of Money was this character who used to carry around a wad of cash. And he'd go, shut your mouth and look at my wad. And he'd wave around this wad of cash. And so that just, I I just think they're a little louche. They're a little loud. Mm. Yeah, they're a little loud. I mean, Mm. but that's just a personal thing. My problem with money clips is where do I put all of my receipts, coupons, you know, ATM right. things, weird club member cards. Yeah, it's true. If you're a man about town, you've got a lot more in your wallet than just cash. Am I right? <laughs> That's what I've heard. Are we men about town? Well, yeah, Brendan is. All right. <laughs> I'm just a man in front of the TV set at home. Money clips for me. <laughs> All right. Here we have another question. This comes from Amanda in Los Angeles. My boss sent me a Facebook friend request today. I like her and there's nothing I have to hide. But I worry that the vice president I hate will follow suit. I do not want to friend the vice president. Should I still accept my boss's request? Slippery slope of Facebook friending. I hate Facebook. <laughs> you know, this is this is the key problem. So the advice is just quit Facebook forever. Well, okay, so I've got a Facebook page. In fact, I've got two. Okay, right. but oh, here's the thing. Wow. There's nothing goes on on my Facebook page for this very reason. You have to have a relationship with all. You have to have a face relationship with all these. A fake Facebook. It's like fake book, right? You've got to have these fake relationships with all these people. So you can't really do anything because if you do, you you feel you're going to compromise yourself. But don't you? I mean, clearly you have one. So don't you use it maybe to promote the book or something like sure, that? Sure. I mean, I use it to promote the book, and I use it to whenever other people are doing cool things. I go, oh, this is cool, and I share this. But it's really just it's it's a conversation about that stuff. It's a, it's nothing personal. So if you're going to take that point of view that Facebook is nothing personal, then invite everybody. Don't care about the VP. She's not going to learn anything about you anyway. It's not like she's a real. She's not like she's a friend. She's a fake friend. <laughs> Just look, look at it as a window on your life, but with sort of those sheer curtains so you can't really see what's going on. So you're saying all in, just monitor how you're using Facebook. Yeah, in. no naked pool. So it's a, basically it's a, a non-social network. I see. Exactly. That's exactly it. I see it as a non-social network. It's like a business network. All yeah. right. Here is a, a guy named you. He writes via Facebook, hmm. without which we wouldn't even have this segment. So I do see? have to take He's some. doing business with us. Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You have a point. He writes, if you know, going into a meal, 
that you are splitting the bill evenly with all of your friends or family, mm. do you try to order something reasonable in price, or do you just eat whatever you want? Good question. Yeah, this is this is brutal, right? Really? Because it's it's almost like a poker game. The waiter comes to the table and he's like, "Okay, so uh, who wants who's ordering cocktails?" And everyone's looking at each other. No, oh, yeah. Okay, because you've got a couple of people are driving. Maybe somebody doesn't drink. Maybe somebody wants a glass of wine, which is four bucks, and the cocktails are seventeen. Basically, you know? what the waiter is asking is, do you do some of you want to append <laughs> hundreds of extra dollars onto this bill that others will have to pay? Yeah, I. This one gets me all the time. I always actually err on the the value meal. <laughs> okay, uh, really? So you yeah. under you under order? I under order because I know I'm going to be because I know there's going to be some jerk at the at the table who's going to be over ordering. Mm. ordering the cocktail and the steak frite, which is just the most expensive thing on the, with the Bernays sauce, you know, and the truffles on the top. All right, Patty, that was once, okay? Can we get over it? Can we get over it? You know? So you're, you're basically like looking out for your fellow man. You're going to keep everybody's prices low. No, I'm really looking out for me. I don't care about them, but I want my price to be low. So that's why I'm, I'm low-balling myself. But the point is that they're splitting the bill. You're going to have to pay for their excess. I know. It makes no sense. I'm shooting myself in the foot here. <laughs> I know that. This is bizarre. I'm shooting it, myself in the stomach. But is I know. this why you always just get breadsticks whenever we go out to eat, you, Rico, and I? <laughs> <laughs> Patty Hirsch. He is the author of Man vs. Markets, Economics Explained, Plain and Simple. And uh, thanks for explaining business etiquette for our listeners. It's a pleasure. So, Rico, I don't know if he knows it, but by inviting Patty on our show, we got a couple of free copies of the book, thus saving money. Yeah. So I think he'd be proud of us. Sure. Although that is 40 bucks or so that's not going into his emergency fund. All right. Yeah, so he's going to be proud and a little bit angry at us. Could be worse for him. And (laughs) folks, speaking of free, every week we answer your etiquette questions gratis. So if you have a dilemma or find yourself in an awkward situation, perhaps. Or if you simply want to hear your name and the name of the town you're from on the radio, contact us at dinnerpartydownload.org and tell us what your problem is. Or you can call the DPD hotline, a.k.a. the phone in my cubicle, number is 213-621-3460. And now, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. Yes, and Brendan, you remember when we were little and the crayon box had standard familiar colors, you know, like blue and yellow? Lilac. Yes, maybe not standard, but familiar, anyway. It's my favorite. (laughs) And then in the 90s, you look at a box and there's colors like banana mania. Uh-huh. That is now happening in wine stores. Wait, banana wine? There's there's now red wine, white wine, and orange wine. Whoa. Which is not made from oranges, by the way, but it looks and tastes completely unusual. And there's a growing cult following for this stuff. So the other day I met up with Randy Clement. He owns Silver Lake Wine here in L.A. I started by asking how orange wine is made. It's just basically white wine. But yeah, normally with white wine, what you do is the grapes are pressed, the skins are removed, the pulp and everything else is taken away, and you're left with kind of a clean, pristine white wine. But with the orange wine, they're leaving the skins, everything in there, and then that's what's giving the wine the additional color and also kind of the additional complexity. And it is kind of, I'm looking at a glass of this stuff right now, and it is, it's kind of orangey. It's more on the white side, but I guess it's orangey. It can go from like super crazy orange, 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 like should I be drinking this type orange, or it goes to this, which is, it's white wine, but there's definitely a little bit of almost amber color to it. So what does that do? I mean, other than giving it a color, what does leaving the pulp and all that stuff in do? What it does is it gives us some more complexity and also gives us some tannin. So basically you have a white wine 
but you have also a lot of elements that would be present in red wine. And there's a little bit more kind of unctuousness to it. There's like a little bit more weight to it. And that's a direct result of the skins being in contact with the juice. So maybe a little more velvety like a red wine, that yeah. you kind of feel it coating your mouth a little. Exactly. That mouth coatingness, and that's kind of a, a characteristic that's going to be always prevalent with these wines. And one, one could probably assume, generally speaking, the oranger the wine, the more of that velvety mouth coating kind of viscosity the wine will have. All right. So what is the history of this stuff? Why are we talking about orange wine all of a sudden these days? I think, you know, well, for one thing, it's, it's these wines have been made forever. Like these wines have been made for like 8,000 years in the Republic of Georgia. Northern Italy, they make a lot of it. Um, the thing that made it kind of critically acclaimed, there was this guy, last name of Grobner, and he was a very famous white wine producer in Northern Italy. A friend of his goes to Georgia, brought him back one of these amphora, these clay vestibules they used to age the wine, and he started to play around with it. And it started to interest him. And then all of a sudden, he makes this crazy, seemingly at the time, decision that he's going to turn all of his production over to this amber and orange wine and completely abandoned the regular white wine making techniques that made him famous in the first place. So this is like Dylan going electric. Perfect. Like Dylan going electric, like the, the white stripes adding bass. People were like astonished that he would do such a thing. Yeah, they thought he was crazy. It, it, for a while there, they were going to be like, I told you you're crazy because his sales declined. People that were expecting his other types of wines when they were buying them were like, what is this? But then he, I think he took it personally and he says, I'm not going to abandon this. And now fast forward and you've got a lot of people in a lot of different places drinking these wines and he has become like the Pope of orange wines. His wines are the best wine list in the world. He, this was when? This was probably like in 2001, 2002, where he made the entirety of his production in the skin contact amber orange wine style. That's interesting. Do you think maybe one of the reasons this stuff has taken off in popularity so much is because... It has that kind of punk rock, I do things my own way background. It's There's a story to it, and it, it hypes up the curiosity of it, but then it also makes it that people are like, they can then tell the story too, that there's actually something behind it, and it's not just you know a straight-up, great-based alcohol delivery device that'll make you feel different. It's kind of more exciting. All right. Well, let's see if uh, this is as exciting to taste as it is to talk about. What do we have here? The glass we have here is called Pheasant's Tears. This is from the Republic of Georgia. This is a dry, unfiltered amber wine. This is, if you look at the color, it's not, you know, Florida orange, but it definitely has more color to it than a classic glass of white wine. So give that a try. All right, here we go. I aerated it. Did you like how I did that? I know how to drink wine. Yeah, man, you're good at that one. Sort of suck it through your lips. Wow. I definitely feel that it's, you know, when you drink a white wine, you kind of get a nice fresh feeling on your tongue and then it's, it sort of fades pretty quickly. This is kind of lasting. I can really feel it on my tongue. And it's a little, it's not sour. It's got kind of a funky taste to it in a way. Yeah, like, it, it, you know, it's not just like insipid, clean, pristine and goes away. There's a length to it. There's a, a discernible beginning, middle and end. And a lot of times with white wine, especially young white wine, there's just the front end of it and it kind of dissipates. With the addition of the skins, what you have is tannin. Like if you're making tea, like you're making black tea, and you oversteep it, that sensation when you drink it, it gets dry in the back of your tongue. That's the tannin. And the tannin does, it, it, it basically, it assists in the aging, gives it kind of like a backbone or like kind of like a, it would be like the the shoulders of Voltron. It's, uh, it's, it, it's, as it sits in the bottle, it gets better. Yeah, it gets better. Like these wines, you know, not that regular white wine can't age, but this will age in a completely different manner. And the nuances will be singular to this style of, of wine. I have to say, I like it. 
But it is a really unusual flavor. I think I would have to get used to it to really drink a lot of it. Does it surprise you at all that this has become as popular as it has among you know certain set? You know, I'm 36 years old. I can't personally think, and you know, I've been doing the wine stuff my entire life. I can't really think of a time when something as seemingly outlandish as this and and kind of complex and d- difficult in a way has caught on with so many young people, like. You'll have, you know, Stevie Drummer and Johnny Lead Singer that you know all night long. They are crushing Paps Blue Ribbon, 60 packs, whatever. And then they'll be like, do you have any orange wine? Like, it's like, you're kidding me, right? You know what I mean? It's like, just to, to have it in the vernacular is just unprecedented. And Brendan, I'm not really steeped in wine lingo, you know, uh-huh. but... The wine's tannins are like the shoulders of Voltron. <laughs> I totally get that. Right. You know? You swap wine geek language with geek geek language. Exactly. <laughs> I, th- I think the wine world should run with this. Okay. This Riesling is as dry as Tatooine. <laughs> that works. Yeah. This sweet rosé pairs great with having no friends. <laughs> <laughs> that hurts, man. Cheers. All right, and that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Till next time, I'll be sad. And you can keep up with us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. James Kim and Tamika Adams are our interns. Thanks also to Ravi Carmen, Peter Clowney, Jess Horowitz, and our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Brooklyn-based indie rock band Grizzly Bear's last album. Uh, Rico, do you want to pronounce it? It's pronounced Vecadimist. Okay. It received loads of critical acclaim and reached number eight on the U.S. Billboard charts. The band's new album, the much easier to pronounce Shields, Mm. comes out in a few weeks. Here's a track called Yet Again. Bon Appetit. For attending the dinner party, I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis New. Gentlemen, do you have those copies of my book? Um, I'll be taking those. Thank you. Wait, Patty, you gave those to us. Uh, excuse me, I borrowed them from the library. Man, that guy's cheap.